I am so thankful for the time together already this morning. It's amazing to be able to come and have Mozart and Handel and Tomlin and, and even Josh Bales. Uh, Josh was one of my former students and friend. He's in Nashville, Tennessee now. I think, Dwayne, if he could have heard this this morning, his heart would have soared as he writes music about what the rule of God looks like. When God is reigning in your heart and in, in our church, what would it look like? That's what he wants us to think about. And that's what we're going to think about this morning as we turn to our Father's Word. I'd like you to turn there to the book of Micah, chapter 6. If you're new to church and you think, Micah, where on earth is that? A little book somewhere just past the middle. I looked it up. It's page 1176. So you'll be able to find that. The book of Micah, written so long ago, but you'll see. Oh, you'll see. It's, it's as if it's written for right now. Micah, chapter 6. We'll be beginning with verse 1. Let's stand because we will remember that this is our Father's word. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people... Remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember, remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous, the just acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow before this exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. To love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And this is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. A few weeks ago, I had the chance to meet with a new members class on a Saturday. And one of those potential new members asked me, I'm almost afraid to tell you that, because if you know that when you ask me something, you make it into the sermon, you might never talk to me, right? All right. But this, I think this is okay. Ask me now, if I become a member here and continue to be a part of this church, what, what do you expect of me? What do you expect of me? Well, I thought of all sorts of things, you know, from my human perspective. Well, I never want you to miss church, especially when I'm preaching. I want you to bring big offerings to church. I want you to serve in 53 different places. I could thought of all sorts of things. Then I pulled back and I thought, oh, 
have to love people more than that. I have to think of a more fundamental question. You know, I'm a shepherd under another shepherd. You know that. So the real question is, if you become a part of this local body of Christ, this family of God, what does our heavenly father expect of you? What do we pray will happen in your life? What you will become, how you will live. And I'll tell you, I've tried to summarize it in as simple words as possible. We put it up. This is what I would say. I put it in my words. I think God wants you to become someone very much like himself. What do you think of that? The theologians have always said you and I as human beings exist to bring glory to God. But bringing glory to God means reflecting, mirroring his ways. And so if I can put it simply, what God longs for us to become, people who have been made in his image, is to grow, to, to show that image again, to show what I call our family traits, so that when we see around this world individual members of the family of God, we'll see those traits of God shining through us. Becoming like God both in our inner beings in what we are, as well as in our outward actions, in how we live. And to demonstrate this morning, I want to take you to one of the great texts in the Bible. I I say that every week, don't I? One of the great texts in the Bible. Uh, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. It's what I call a boil-down text. When you boil it all down, what's left? The, the, The essential matter. What is the heart of what the Bible is saying to us? Because I know that the Bible is a book that is written over many, many centuries and through many different human authors and a long time ago. The beauty of that is we can keep studying it and every time we study it, we learn something new, right? The difficulty is the challenge of understanding it. But in answering that challenge, occasionally God stops and says, let me boil it all down. Everything that I've revealed, everything I've said, everything I have done can be boiled down to this. This text has been so central that even a couple of our presidents have used it in their inaugurations, Presidents Harding and Carter at least. But you will see that even though it was written a long time ago, it is incredibly relevant. It was written by a man named Micah. He wouldn't have been a preacher in Pasadena. He was a country boy. He lived a long way away from any city, and he wrote a long time ago, oh, about 27 centuries ago. Uh, a long time ago. But I think if I, if I can communicate it well, you will feel as if he is writing to people in Washington, D.C. in our day, or maybe to Sacramento, California, or maybe even right here to the Los Angeles area. See, Micah lived outside the city, but as he looked down into the city and he saw what people were doing, he saw that people who had been entrusted with gifts, sometimes positions of authority or with wealth, we're using their positions of uh, political authority or, or the religious positions or sometimes their positions in their families, not the way that God intended. They use their influence and authority just to bring benefit and blessing to themselves. And those under their care were hurting. So Micah sends them some pretty strong messages from the Lord. Let me just read a few of them to you. Uh, from Micah chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, I've just put a few things together. Hear this, you leaders, God says through Micah. You rulers who despise justice 
You're a leader and you distort what is right. He says, look, judges, they judge, but they do it for a bribe. Priests are teaching, but they teach for a price. And prophets are telling the future, but they're telling it for money. And still, they lean upon the Lord and they say, but isn't the Lord among us? No disaster, nothing bad will come upon us. Uh, We're not as bad as other nations. I can almost hear us saying this sort of thing. We have big churches like Lake Avenue. Nothing bad will ever happen to us. Well, let me tell you, the best known part of Micah's prophecy is found in the text that we're looking at today. Micah chapter 6. Lawyers who are here, you you should really like this text. It is a courtroom setting. Um, God, it's called a reeve. In in Hebrew, a reeve, people are called into the courtroom. And so in many ways, if we read it right, it it should be more thrilling than a John Gresham courtroom novel. And maybe it will be more interest-grabbing than the potential upcoming O.J. Simpson trial number two. What what do you think? Well, I hope you'll listen that carefully, because what I need to do for a while, and so those who are here, listen carefully. I want to teach the text. You need to see what's there. And then I'm hoping that we will all see the relevance of this text to every part of our lives. All right, let's begin. There is a call to court. There is a call to court. Uh, Very first two verses. Uh, This God calls people to listen. He's going to make a case. And notice he calls together a jury. But it's an interesting jury. The mountains in verse 6. But the hills here. What are, what are going to be saying? Mountains and hills and everlasting foundations. Those are going to be the jury. See, the point that's being made here is God is going to make a case against all people. Uh, and he's going to call together those things that were created even before people were created. He's taking us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And he says, through all of my dealings with people throughout the history of the earth, I want a jury to come and give witness to what I have done. So there we have the courtroom scene. Now we come with the plaintiff's case. It begins with a very tender statement showing us the way that God cares for people, cares for us. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? It would almost be as if we were to say, I don't even want to go to that church just as a burden to me. I don't want to serve in any way. It's just a burden to me. I don't want to hear anything about that. And God says, what have I done? That makes it so that you don't want to hear something from my word. And then he tells us and shows us what he's done. Three pieces of evidence. Three pieces of evidence that come from the history of the Old Testament. First in verse 4, God rescued his people while they were in slavery. It's the story of when they were there in Egypt. And they were being oppressed. Injustice was being shown to them by the powers that were. And when they were in that time of oppression and injustice, God cared. And and he made things right. And he rescued them and pulled them in to a place of freedom. He is a God of justice. Evidence number two. A lesser known case in in verse five, the first part. Involving a king named Balak who wanted to wipe out the people of God. And wanted to find a prophet who would curse God's people. And that prophet, a pretty poor prophet he was, was named Balaam. Now, if you know anything about Balaam, you know something more about somebody who accompanied 
Balaam. Balaam's donkey. And as Balaam was going, and I'll tell you, this is an encouraging thing for a preacher. Even if on a Sunday morning I don't preach very well, God can still make his message known, right? Because if he can make his message known through a donkey, there's hope for your preacher. Just, just, just think about that. And what happened in this situation was that Balak was trying to curse God's people and wipe off the people of the earth from the earth. Uh, but what, what had been meant for evil, God was able to transform into good. It's the power of God to do that. Second piece of evidence. Don't you see that I've done that? And then the third piece of evidence was a time that they'd gotten themselves into trouble. Remember that journey all the way from Shittim to Gilgal. He's talking about this time they wandered and wandered around in the desert, in the wilderness. Why do they have to stay there so long? It's because of their sin, their lack of faith. When we fail... Does God always hold us at arm's length or do we have any hope? No, God says, I showed you mercy. (laughs) I showed you mercy. I was willing to forgive and to welcome you back again. I brought you into the promised land. So there's the case that he has made. He is a God of justice, a God who can transform evil to good, a God of mercy. Now look at the defendant's response. My mom talks about People who act in a snooty sort of way. Do you know that phrase? Snooty, arrogant, sort of. That's that's the feel of this to me. After hearing all the ways that God had dealt with them graciously, look at what they say. Well, what does he what does he expect of us? With what shall I come before this Lord and bow down before this exalted God? What does he want? Just bigger and bigger offerings? Uh, Will he be pleased with? And it gets to the absurd. Thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil. I mean, that wouldn't, that wouldn't please this God. Maybe sometimes you think that way. What does he expect of me? I showed up at church. How many times do I have to come? Does he expect me to bring my firstborn because of my sin? Escalating. The fruit of my body because of the sin of my soul. What does this God expect of me? That brings us to this powerful verdict. And you see what he's doing through all that God has done throughout history. He has showed us. And it's interesting. The word that's used. Oh, man. Do you see that? The word is oh, Adam. Oh, Adam. Oh, Adam. Takes us back again to Genesis chapter one and two. From the very first human being up until the very last. God shows us consistently what he is like. And if we are made in his image, which all of us are. He shows us what he expects of us. What does the Lord require of his children? Number one, he requires us to act with justice. Do you understand that word? It's not an easy word to understand, but the Hebrew word that that Micah uses is for those things that are right. Those things that are consistent with the character and ways of God. And it can be applied in two ways. Number one, to our own personal lives. So you come to church on a Sunday morning. So you you look back over the past week and you can see, I'm sure if you're honest, you can see things in your life that are not right. Right? Uh, Words you've spoken that hurt. uh, Thoughts that you have had. Addictions that you've given into. 
then you show up in the church. If you're going to act with justice, what do we have to do? We must bring those things to God so that they can be made right. So to act with justice will sometimes for us mean repentance and a commitment to God to go from this place living differently from the way we lived before because of his grace and through his power. But there's another use of that word justice about things being right. And that is when we leave this place, even if our lives have been made right with God, we're going to be sent into a world where all is not right. And we're going to see people, valuable people all around us in this world who are suffering and who are hurting because of the sin and injustice that is, that is all around us. And, and, and to act with justice, especially in this book of Micah, as well as in other books like Amos, it means that whatever God has given to us, we use it sacrificially at times to make things right for others, to show them God's compassion to show them that God cares, and if we are God's people, that we care as well. So, so what is justice? I've tried to put up a definition. I, I don't know if it's the best, but in my own words, I put it this way. It's right living. Sometimes you'll find the words righteous. It's, it's, it's right living. It's the way that people made in God's image are supposed to live. And that re- right living means our lives are right in relation to God. Then also... Our lives are right in relation to all people God brings across our paths, that we treat them in the right way and we stand with them. And it's right living in the world in which we live. So this justice starts with loving God and always flows into a love of people as ourselves. And ultimately, those who seek justice will seek to bring everything in this world that God has created into conformity with the will and the ways of God. Is that clear? If it is, and even if it isn't, notice that you are to act with justice. I tell you, this is the hard part because it's so much easier for me to talk about justice and preach to you about it than actually to live this way. But the Bible will not allow us simply to get up here and theorize about what it means to live lives that bring God's justice to this world. We must act with justice. I don't know if you've ever read E.M. Forster's book, A Passage to India. He draws upon some things that Gandhi had once said, that the Christian message is a beautiful and powerful message, but he'd never seen anyone who lived it. And in taking a shot at the Christian faith, he talks about what he calls poor little talkative Christianity. (sighs) Poor little talkative Christianity. We can talk big. But we don't show the the power and the beauty of the faith that has come to us. That that God has dealt with us with justice and mercy and love and sends us to show the same to the world. But so few of us do it. Um, I simply want to tell you that this isn't an optional extra for us. If we're going to glorify God, either as individuals or as a church to this world... We must more and more learn what it means to act with justice. We must show people the care of our Heavenly Father through the ways that we show care to other people. Uh, That when we see sin in our lives, we'll acknowledge it, confess it to God, and hear the gospel, right? That the blood of Christ is sufficient. We can continue to be used by God. 
And then when we go from this place, we will live lives of justice so that in this suffering and unjust world, people may have hope and know that they can have a place of forgiveness, belonging, and growth. We must act justly. Second, we're to love. I had to use the Hebrew word here because I couldn't find a good enough English word. We are to love hesed. You're not as thrilled about that as I'd want you to be. The versions that you have uh, probably have mercy or maybe kindness. It's, it's the same word, Jeremy, as we sang this song about the, the uh, everlasting love of the Lord. I'll tell you what the Hebrew word has to do with. It has to do with a lasting, ongoing relationship. And the reason why it's sometimes translated kindness is because it takes kindness to have a lasting relationship, doesn't it? And I'll tell you, the reason why it's sometimes translated mercy is that we have to show mercy to imperfect people if we're going to have a lasting relationship. Now, I've tried to ask, now, if we're going to be people who have lasting relationships with people, with which people? All people made in the image of God. All people, just, just all, let's, let's limit, just all the people for whom Christ died. What's it going to demand of us? Let me tell you, one, it's going to demand new eyes. I've talked about this week after week, but you and I have to learn more and more to see people as God sees people. You know that God saw you and me, saw people worthy of being rescued. People worthy of of coming into our lives through his spirit. And so that we have to learn to see people differently from the way that the world sees people. Always separated by age or ethnicity or different kinds of things. We have to have these new eyes to see all people as God sees us. A second, it's going to demand crossing comfort zones. To develop relationships with people that we don't naturally develop relationships with. Because you and I live in this divided world. And, you know, sometimes we want people to kind of take the first step. But we have to sometimes be willing to take that first step and show people that we love them. So it means a sacrifice on our part to relate to those that we might not naturally relate to. And in a community like ours, kind of this mix of suburban, urban, I'll tell you the challenge of this. We have an opportunity here. We have an opportunity to cross comfort zones and enter into real lasting relationships with people very different from ourselves, just like Jesus did by leaving heaven to make the sacrifice to come here to enter into a relationship with us. It's gospel three. It does demand, and I had to write this down, a willingness to forgive and show mercy. Why? Because we let one another down. We people fail. But intimate relationships require trust. And you know how hard it is to trust once trust has been broken. But we have to learn to forgive and to be vulnerable again. It's hard for me to say, but we must. And you might say, okay, but how often must I do it? What would Jesus say? Seventy times seven. But who's counting? Newcomers, Jesus actually says that, just to let you know. And finally, 
It demands a love of finding ways to heal broken relationships. Sometimes those broken relationships come because we had to act with justice to support somebody uh, who was hurting and somebody was treating them unjustly and we had to break from the relationship of that abusive person. But, But somehow, even though we will have to stand against that evil and injustice and the one who does it, the Christian must offer the opportunity of forgiveness. This is so hard. This combination of justice with mercy is one of the enormous challenges that calls us to fall upon God again and again. And look at your Bible again. We are to love. We are to love mercy relationships. It's just the strongest word, ahav, in Hebrew. We, it's the passion of our hearts that we see people come together and relationships be mended. Is that true of us? Now, I told you I'd try to tell you about some ways that this applies to everything. Uh, for me, one of the times that I sought to apply this text, I want you to think about whether it was appropriate, was 42405. That's kind of the 9-11 of Trinity International University, where I used to be the president. 42405. That was the Thursday evening that the third of three hate letters were received by some of our students. Over the past week, uh, three of our students of color, minority students, had received letters of ever, threatening, ever-escalating violence. They were very Columbine-like letters. Uh, and the last of them, this one, said, I was in chapel this morning uh, with weapons, but there were too many of us up there on stage, but I will kill them, threatening to kill all of the students of color at our university. Now, we in the North Shore of Chicago were in a fairly homogeneous area. Our community was a very diverse area, so I knew that was a problem for many people. Uh, It was also the anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing and the anniversary of of Adolf Hitler's birthday. And so, as president, I'd been already warned that this is a time of increased danger with terrorism. And so when I heard that last letter, I got a call on a Thursday night. I was on the tennis court playing tennis. My phone called that only a few people had that number. And it was Dr. William Washington Coffey, who was here several months ago, and Dr. Jeanette Shea, our provost. And they said, President, let us read you this letter. And when they read it, my heart broke. I ran out and jumped in the car and ran up to, uh, to our campus. And there on my desk was Micah 6-8. It was April 24th. And in just a few weeks, I would be delivering the baccalaureate address to our graduates. And this was the text that God had put on my heart. Little did I know that I'd actually have to apply this text to the role that God had given me. And I remember Coffee and Jeanette and Dr. Tianu, who was also here, sitting down and saying, what does this look like in our community? What does it mean to use the authority that God has given us to seek to bring about justice For those under our care. The the decision was fairly easy. I thought what it means now is to make a decision that will get our students to safety as best we can, even though we may look like fools and it would be very costly and and the world would soon know that um, that this is not a perfect place. We'd probably lose donors and students. We evacuated all of our students from the campus. We'd already had a plan and got them to places 
of safety as best we could. It must have been a slow news day. It made it all the way out into the media. It made it into the L.A. Times and Orange County Register. It made it all the way into the New York Times. Soon we had Jesse Jackson on campus and Geraldo doing interviews with our students. And all of this was simply escalating. Now, I'm not going to tell you the whole story because I want you to come back to church. (laughs) But I will tell you this. Eventually, after a number of days, when the truth came out, it was not a hate group. If you know the North Shore of Chicago, it's a center of neo-Nazi activity as well, some of the areas. But it was not one of those groups that we had thought it might be. It was one of our own minority students, one of our women, who was trying to create a racial problem within our community. Um, Those of you who have ever been in the minority in a community among the majority of people, can you imagine how hard that was? Uh, Dr. Washington, TNU, and I called together all of our students of color after this came out. And I'll tell you, for me, it was the hardest meeting I've ever been in. So whatever you throw at me here at Lake Avenue, I'll never be in one like that, I think. All of these uh, times of frustration and shame, the many times that people have been in our community but felt as if People were blind to them and never spoke to them and never noticed them. All came out, all of this frustration. I said to Dr. Tino, that's the worst meeting I've ever been in. And he said, Mr. President, I think someday. See, I always impersonate him. I think someday you will find it was the best meeting you have ever been in. Because we regathered our students and began talking about this. We had to act with justice. But now we all must learn to love relationship. We had to make a renewed commitment that God would not only form us into Christian community, not simply in spite of this, but because of this. I will tell you, God began a work. And lest you, with the, I'm going to tell you some negative responses, but lest you think I got so many, I got so many strokes for this, hundreds, even thousands of emails and and cards and telephone calls, thankful for the steps that had been taken. But I had two waves of negativity that came. One wave of them came from a group of white evangelical church leaders. They'd heard me talk about what I so often talk to you about, my deep longing of seeing a community that looks more like heaven, a place where the walls are down and we love one another and we serve together with people who are different from us. That's what heaven's going to be like. You know, I have that... See, I get into talking about it all the time, don't I? This longing, but always telling me that's not natural. Churches don't grow that are like that. It's too hard to be like that. And some of the letters that came would tell me, Greg, you're simply wrong-headed in this notion of a community that crosses lines of race, class, nationality, and ethnicity. They told me these never work, that I just invite ongoing problems. And the, the hard part was they said, Whatever I do, it's not going to be enough. Why do you insist on causing yourself and your school all of this pain? All right. The second wave of negativity came from the other side, from a few of the African-American church leaders that came to their students and their students passed on their messages to me. They told their minority students to just give up on, on these white evangelical leaders They said, you know, we've all tried to trust these people again and again, and they simply cannot be trusted. Your president's idea of community and partnership is either naive or simply not to be relied on. Eventually, you'll see it. He'll let you down. 
right, people, this is where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? I threw these controversial things right out there, don't I? Why do we insist on staying in relationship with one another even though it's hard? It's because the Bible has commanded us to love Hesed. Anybody, any amens? The Bible has commanded us. It's told us it's not an optional extra, extra to us. Throughout the history of the world, God has shown us that all people are of value and can be in his family. And we are to love relationships with all people. Why would we insist on building communities even though there's pain in that? It's because God loves Hesed. He shows mercy to whom? To all people. To what extent? To the cross. He sent His one and only Son who gave His life so that we could be brought into right relationship with God and with one another. Why should we long for Lake Avenue Church to be a place that has those kinds of relationships, unity that crosses the lines? Because I tell you, when the world sees it, they will know that God is in this place. That, it, that it's not a social club. That God is breaking down walls that He alone can break down. He has shown us what is good. And what is good is that we will always act with justice and support those who are hurting and struggling. But when we do it, we will love. We will love relationship. Finally, and just briefly, the only thing that will make those two things possible is that we live, we walk, always conscious of the presence of God. That's what that last phrase, walk humbly with God. Uh, it really means just walk always knowing that God is beside you. Longtime churchgoers, do you remember that old pamphlet, Practicing the Presence of God? That's what this is talking about. It means when you leave the church today, you don't leave his presence. When you go out and somebody comes across your path and they get on your nerves, God is there. And so we have to learn to ask, Father, how should I see that person? How should I treat that person? And when we remember that God has shown mercy to us, right? Then maybe we're willing to show mercy to them as well. Because you know that we can do these small acts of justice and mercy and still be awfully proud, can't we? My mom had a phrase, you can be proud of sin. Don't you think that's a great, that's a great phrase? Because that's what sin is. It's, it's self-centeredness and pride. But when we walk, and that word is important too, walk knowing that God is there, we will walk in humility. And we will be ready with the presence and power of God to act in support of people who are suffering and we will be ready to show mercy, even to those very different from ourselves. So I'll come back to that question. Um, if, if, if you remain a part of this community, what does God expect of you? And so simply, I'll tell you what God would expect, what he would long for, is that in the soil of this community, you would become much more like he is. Do you long for that to happen? Much more of what God created you to be. 
Let me close with an illustration. After that episode had happened on our campus, I was on the plane flying. We had a law school down in Santa Ana flying there, and I was going to deliver this text. Isn't that a good text for a law school (laughs) graduation Uh, to the uh, graduating law students? And there was a movie that was on on the plane. It's not a great movie, but the point of the movie is tremendous. It's the movie from a couple of years ago, Spanglish. The point of this is so good. The narrative situation, the narrative setting is a young girl named Christina is trying to get into Princeton University. And so she is writing, you know, the essays that you have to write to get into the university. And the question that she is writing about is who has been the greatest influence in your life? Uh, Any of you who are younger who are going to get, you'll probably have to write one of these. Who has been the greatest influence in your life? And it takes you back to an extended flashback. When her single mom, abandoned by the father, wants the best for her daughter and pulls her out of her homeland of Mexico here into one of the Latino areas of Los Angeles. And there this mother works three jobs to try to bring up her child until Christina becomes a beautiful teenager. And the mother realizes she can't work that much if she's going to protect her daughter from all these boys. Mothers, you can probably understand that. So she begins looking for one job that would pay her enough to be able to live. And she finds this job taking care of the home of this incredibly dysfunctional Caucasian family, especially the wife of the family. Any of you have seen this? But what happens in this situation is that the teenage daughter is being pulled into that value system where materialism and self-centeredness become the main values. And her mom is faced with a tough issue. Will she pull her daughter out of that situation? Or will she let her daughter become like them? Will her daughter take up their values and become like them? Or will she pull her out so that she can be in their eyes odd? And in one of the most powerful scenes, just go all the way to the end of it. One of the most powerful scenes I've seen. Every parent can understand this. You have this mother dragging her child on this long walk to the bus stop. And um, in that bus stop, Christina was doing what many of us have done. Mom, I hate you. You don't understand. Give me a chance to go back. All of those things. Parents, have you ever had that probably never happened in a home in Lake Avenue Church. Until her mother stops. And in a powerful moment, I want to see if I can get it right. She turns to her daughter and says, I regret that I have to ask you such a fundamental question about the whole of your life at such a young age but is what you want for yourself to become someone so very different from me is what you want to become someone so very different from me we're pulled all the way back I'll start crying to this um, admissions essay that she is writing And I put it up here so that you can see it. This is what Christina writes. I would like to be accepted for admittance at your school. But you must know that acceptance, while it will thrill me, it will not define me. Who am I? I am my mother's daughter. So my brothers and sisters here at Lake Avenue Church, who are you? Who are we? I declare to you, we are our father's children. We are our father's children.
And if we will show the world what our father is like, what does our father expect of us? Well, he has shown us, hasn't he? He's shown us what is good. Let us make a renewed commitment to act with justice, to love mercy, and in doing so, always to walk humbly with our God. To his glory. Amen. I would like to have uh, Dwayne and Jeremy to come back up. That song that was written that Josh, Josh Bales wrote for us is such a wonderful prayer. It really is about the rule of God in our hearts and our lives and what makes everything different. It summarizes this message so powerfully and so well. Here's what I would like to do. <clears throat> if you've come here this morning and you're not sure that you have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus... We invite you to come up after the service. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you and tell you how you can come to know him. If you've come and there are issues in your life that you've wrestled with, but you want someone to pray with you about them, this time of recommitment, uh, someone to join with you, that you'll be courageous, that your life will change, come up after the service as well. But even as you get ready for that and allow the Spirit of God to do his work in your heart, let's stand together and make this song our prayer.